Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 108. Today's guest is Cam F. Awesome. Cam F. Awesome, formerly known as Lenroy Thompson, is an American amateur boxer best known for being a six-time national amateur boxing champion, six-time ringside champion, and four-time Golden Gloves champion. Cam competed at three Olympic trials and has an amazing story to tell of his journey through the amateur ranks. Cam and I discuss how being bullied as a child led him into the boxing ring. We discuss his amazing boxing career that led him to 326 wins to only 30 losses. Amazing. Cam is also featured in the 2017 Netflix documentary called Counterpunch. We discuss how Cam transitioned from boxing to motivational speaking and comedy. Today, Cam goes around the country speaking to students about the importance of anti-bullying, gratitude, and living with a positive mindset. It is a fun conversation filled with great stories and wisdom from someone who is at the top of their game in the boxing world. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. Or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of awesome interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Cam F. Awesome. And remember, life is built, not born. Here we go. Cam F. Awesome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? So who am I? I'm a adventurer. I'm a former boxer and I'm a motivational speaker right now. And I also do stand-up comedy. I do some emceeing, pretty much a lot of things with microphones. So no more punching of people. I've had a pretty good career as a boxer. I've transitioned, I've hung up the gloves and picked up a microphone. I want to get into your career as a boxer, which is so impressive. From national championships, being ranked number one in the nation in the super heavyweight division, winning as boxer in USA boxing history, four golden gloves, six US national championships, <clears throat> six ringside championships, three Olympic trials. You were the subject of a Netflix, a documentary, Counterpunch. I want to talk about your amazing work you're doing now with school-age kids, going through high schools and middle schools, talking about mental toughness, gratitude, cultural awareness. Did some research. Maybe you're <laughs> plant-based, maybe vegan. Is yeah, that fair to say? Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit. But before we do that, I want to go back all the way to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Long Island, New York. Grew up in a town called Uniondale. If you think back in Long Island, Uniondale, right around 10 or 12 years old, I find that age a very formative time in kids' lives. And I find the home life, especially the dinner table, like a microcosm of their life at that moment. What did the dinner table look like for you? Who was there? What was going on? The dinner table was the couch and the television. We always ate in front of the TV. As a family, watch family shows, but that was the routine. That was the, uh, No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> so, well, here's the thing. When I was, my parents split when I was about four years old. 
I moved in with my grandma. And so my grandma, my mom, my aunt, my grandpa, my two sisters, and myself lived in a home. A lot of people, very small home. And I lived there until I was 12. When I was 12, my parents got back together and I moved into my house with my family. And we still ate in front of the television. Right now, <laughs> I eat at the dinner table with my girl every night. We we play Yahtzee. We've played yeah. over 3,300 games of Yahtzee. Really? Uh, we are funny enough at a tie right now. So we stopped. And so you went from always in front of the TV to now you are face-to-face at the dinner table. Is that on purpose? By accident? That's very on purpose. So through my travels, I've been to over 30 countries. And one thing is constant with each and every country. All of them are weird. Sure. And they all think I'm weird. It's a different culture. And in, in Italy, I used to go to Italy and I used to, I loved everything about Italy except for dinner. It would take forever to eat. <laughs> it, bro, they would bring you a little bit of food and like, and then leave you there for like 20 minutes. And then they bring you a little bit more food and then another 20 minutes. And then they bring you some food with gravy on it. And then, and then another 20 minutes, they give you a pastry the size of a free sample at Sam's Club. Yeah, yeah. It's over the span of two hours, Joe. It, it bothered me because I'm like, I want all my food at once, yeah. in and out. Yeah. And I didn't realize that the reason why they eat that way, it's not about the food. It's about connecting with your family, the thing that you're pointing out. Yeah. And I am culturally appreciating the way Italians eat with their family, because now I'm very conscious about that in my home with my girl. So we eat at the dinner table, no television. We'll play music sometimes and we play board games while we eat. But the idea is no phones. We don't even say no phones. It's Mm -hmm. just our phones just aren't there. It's known. Yeah. At dinner, when you're eating, like your guard drops, you're a bit reflective. When you start eating, you just start sharing things, right? It's very... It's very engaging usually when you eat with someone. It's like a special bond, right? When you're eating with somebody, you you reveal things that maybe you wouldn't reveal in a work setting, in an office setting, or in a school setting, right? It's an amazing way to connect with someone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 A lot of cultures connect over food. Let's fast forward to about 18 years old. If someone asked the 18-year-old version of Cam F. Awesome what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would the 18-year-old version of you say? You wouldn't believe me, but pretty much exactly this. So I was 18 when I won my first national championship. Okay. And right before the fight, they give you a piece of paper to fill out your height, your weight, your hometown, your reach. And the final question is, what do you want out of boxing? Some people put millions of dollars, heavyweight championship, belts, Olympic gold medal. I put to be a good role model. And to be an actor and to prove that this was never corrected because it's still up there right now. It's on the website. It says a actor instead of an actor, which that bothers me. (laughs) I think you're going to pass that one. This is in 2008 before social media, before, Mm -hmm. because what I want to do is I was looking and I didn't know that whole Gandhi be the person you want to be. It's like I was looking for someone that I wanted to be like in life and I couldn't find that person. And I wanted to be that person for other people. So my mission for boxing and doing all that type of stuff was I just wanted to be a good role model and influence people. And I wanted to be a performer. So when I was 12, what my goal was, is I want to be on TV. 
That's why I love TV. And I, my favorite show was all that. And I wanted my own TV show, a comedy TV show. And I thought my way of doing that was through boxing. So I thought if I would want enough in boxing, I would be relevant enough to get my own TV show and be a good role model. Yeah. That was my goal, actually, funny enough, at 18. I thought it would happen a lot faster, and I thought it was going to be thought it'd be a lot easier. No matter what it is, if it's a worthwhile goal, it's never as easy or as fast as you want it to be, huh? Ever. Ever. Nope. Ever. And if it was, would it be worth it? No, because you wouldn't enjoy it or appreciate it as much. So true. How about this? Now, on your website, doing some research on you. You said growing up, I struggled a lot, both academically and socially. And after years of anxiety and bullying, I uh, eventually joined a boxing gym. Talk about the years of the anxiety and the bullying. What was that about? So actually, and it's funny enough, because I'm piecing that together now, because I didn't know what the word anxiety was until like the last recent years. I used to volunteer in the nurse's office during the lunch period, like filing papers because I didn't like being in the lunchroom with all those people. And I found that was my way to get away from all those people. Now, there was a kid who lived at the end of the street. So at the end of the street was, uh, was you had to walk down the end of the street, and then my school was down there. There was a kid who lived at the end of the block. I won't say his name, but he used to beat me up often. And it got so bad to the point where, this is elementary school, they would let me out of school 15 minutes early so I can get home before he got to me. Wow. And now that I see, now I'm saying as an adult, it sounds so crazy. I'm like, I wish someone would have stepped in and done something that created an anxiety in me. And I was always fearful of people. I was always fearful of crowds. And I always thought someone was going to beat me up. And if, you know, in middle school, someone makes a joke or something, everything someone said to me or looked at me, I felt like I was being attacked. And it was probably was nothing. But to me, that was, I didn't know what anxiety was. And I thought if I joined the boxing gym, I didn't want to become a fighter, but I want to look like a fighter because I thought if I looked like a fighter, people would leave me alone if I could intimidate them. Just to recap here, you said that you were a kid at the end of the block, bullied you, beat you up, and like the administration or some adults knew about it enough that they let you go early before, so you wouldn't run into them. So they knew it was happening, but they wouldn't step in. They just said, go get a head start and go. We'll, we'll give you like a 15-minute head start. But they would never step in and say, hey, maybe this isn't right. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah. Crazy. Definitely anxiety. But there's a fear-based element to that, too, don't you think? It's anxiety and fear. I'm thinking you're going to get beat up every time you leave the school building. What's that do to a middle school uh, age kid? I'll tell you, I never went to the bathroom in high school or middle school during school. Crazy. How much did that affect your experience in school as a person, as your mindset? Like, what did that do? Oh, to I'm worried about school. I'm worried about survival. Yep. I was a and terrible student. How can you do good in school if you can't even go to the bathroom. You're worried about going to the bathroom. If I go to the bathroom, maybe that person's there and I get beat up. How are you going to do good in your geometry test? Like, there's no chance. And, but, and of course, this is, I'm, I'm a kid and I don't know how to, and still, even as an adult, if I'm being honest, I don't exactly know the words to use to explain any of this. So I don't know how I would even articulate that to an adult as a child. That's crazy. You hear of the word advantage or privilege. That is like the other side of it. Where you're like, you literally are afraid to go to the bathroom. You're in school. There's very little chance of someone in the situation you're in excelling academically when you're actually one, afraid to go to the bathroom. And two, you can't even stay the full day of school. You have to leave early so the kid doesn't beat you up. Basically, they, they give you a head start to get home so they couldn't catch you. When you think back to that time, 
what comes to your mind? What feelings or thoughts when you think back to that? Weirdly, I don't normally talk about this. So like right now I'm feeling anger. Yeah. Feeling anger, being honest. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you. So let's move on. What drew you to boxing? I, I, I want to actually harp back on that for a little bit though. Go. Uh, I, so that was my foundation. And I'm weirdly grateful that was my foundation because as people, we're anti-fragile. So the more we go through, the stronger we become. And because I didn't know what anxiety was, and I didn't know that it was something that I could escape, I just thought that was life. And I had to act in the anxiety. So Mm -hmm. everything I did, I did with that fear. And it made me numb to certain things. It made me numb to the idea of failure. It made me numb to the idea of shame. Who cares if people think I'm a loser because I lost? Everyone already always thinks I'm a loser. And I have that. It's probably not the healthiest, but it's the whole built, not born. That was a part of my building. Yeah, no doubt. You mentioned a word a couple of minutes ago, anti-fragile. Nassim Taleb, you're talking about his book. Is that, are you referencing? There's an amazing yes, book yes. called Fragile. But yeah, yeah. That's an incredible read. You can see where that anti-fragileness, where it's like, from what I remember of the book, like some people have what we'll call trauma or like an obstacle and it destroys them. Some people just, the second group like survives it, but like, oh my gosh, I just made it. And then the third group gets empowered and gets stronger and they're better because they went through it, right? And you're saying you're yeah. in that third group where yeah. it, didn't, it didn't overwhelm you. You didn't just survive and have nothing left on the other end. Like I'm here, like you fall through the finish line. I made it, but I got nothing left. You're like, you're better because you went through it and you're stronger because you went through it. Is that what you're trying to say? Y- yes. And I've never seen myself as a victim. Even as I say all that type of stuff, I never saw myself as a victim. And I will say I have very binary thinking to a fault, which probably not the greatest thing for relationships, but for decision-making, everything is black and white to me. So when I was chubby and I would get bullied because of my weight, and actually probably not even bullied because of my weight, every so often, like kids, you know, people call me bosoms because I had like man boobs. (laughs) And you see, you even laugh, it's funny, but like to a kid. No, it's not. No, no. Yeah, but what a creative term for, <laughs> but kids call them bosoms. And so my idea was like, if I lost weight and I got intimidating, people would stop bullying me. And I wanted to go to the boxing gym because I tried out for every team. I couldn't make a team. I'm not athletic, but the boxing gym, you don't have to make a team. Mm-hmm. I can just use their workout equipment. That's all I really wanted. Mm-hmm. But before I went to the boxing gym, I was embarrassed of how big I was. So I wanted to lose weight before I got there. Sort of like brushing your teeth really well before you go to the dentist. We spoke a little bit earlier. One of the past guests on the show, Hiron Gracie, runs Gracie University out in Los Angeles. So one of the best jujitsu academies in the country. So many people go to him like, oh, Hiron, I'm about to, I want to join jujitsu, but I want to work out for six months and be in good shape before I go. And he's like, the best way to get in shape for jujitsu is to 
train jujitsu. Just jump in, just go in. Yeah. You know, and say the best way to get ready for boxing is to jump in the boxing ring and yeah. get going. But tell us about this. So you go into the boxing ring, like a lot of people, they take karate, boxing, you jump in, but you don't just jump in. You have such a high level of success. Here's why. Go ahead. Here, uh, but before we even get there, so go. the reason why I want to go to the boxing gym is when I was about 14, it was explained to me how calories work. Okay. So it was like, basically you consume about 2,000 calories a day, you burn about 2,000 calories a day, and then you you break even. And I wanted to lose weight. So this was something I remember learning in school. I'm like, this is why I'm here. And I'm like, okay. And I realized the equation, if you burn more calories than you consume, you will lose weight. Binary thinking, black and white. When mm-hmm. You strip down every diet, every marketing thing. That's what a diet is, is burning less calories than you consume. So in my head, I I came up with this equation. One plus two equals three. In this equation, you are number one. You should always be your own number one. No one's going to believe in you unless you believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. Number three in this equation is your goal, the outcome, your objective. One plus two equals three. Two in this equation is the work that you have to do to get the outcome that you want. And the reason why I call number two, number two is because it is the shitty part of the job. It is the hard work. It's the part that no one wants to do. So in my head, I plug that equation in one plus two equals three. So me working out every day equals losing weight. So what I did was I got rollerblades. I was 14 years old. I got rollerblades and I decided to rollerblade for an hour every day before school because I wasn't going to consume less calories. I was going to burn more. That was my thinking. And I did it morning after morning after morning after morning after. I did it six days in a row, Joe. No one stopped and said, hey, Cam, I can tell you're losing weight. Keep up the good work. And I was sore. I was tired. And I was like, it's not working. And I realized if the equation works, like there's nothing else you can add to the equation. And I realized, oh, patience. That's the only thing you can add to the equation Mm -hmm. is patience. And I realized if the equation works, math doesn't lie. If I continue to do this, it will eventually work. And Joe, after about two or three months, people would be like, oh, look at Cam. He thinks he's skinny. And I would blush because I knew it was working. The equation worked. And once I figured that out, Joe, that, because I didn't have any confidence, I kind of explained who I was. But once I figured out that equation, I thought that was the secret code to life. Mm -hmm. I can become anything I want to be. So the equation was to lose weight. I rollerbladed. I lost the weight enough to get to the boxing gym. And my goal at the boxing gym was just to hit the bag, jump rope and everything to lose weight. And after I lost all the weight and I got in better shape than the other fighters, the coach was like, Hey, Cam, do you want to spar? You're in better shape than everyone else. And I was like, Oh, my, my, my parents won't let me. And everyone laughed. And I was like, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'll get my mouthpiece. <laughs> And I was so afraid to get hit the next day in the gym while sparring that I was only working on defense and I was moving around so much. I didn't get hit at all, but I was moving around so much. I realized sparring is a way better workout than hitting the bag or jumping rope. So I got addicted to sparring. And one of the reasons why I was in the gym is I wanted to feel like I belong somewhere because in school, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't click with anyone. And for the first time in my life, I felt needed because everyone wanted to spar me because yep. I'm a bigger guy, but I was sparring 
this boxers, 110 pounds, every weight. I wouldn't hurt anyone. I was just worried about working on defense. So you can throw punches at me with no consequences. So I realized I was sparring all this time and not getting hit. I still had no intentions of fighting. One plus two equals three. One, me. Two, not getting hit. Three, winning. So I took that equation. And after not being able to make a team or anything in life, I used that equation to accomplish everything I've accomplished. One plus two equals three. One plus two equals three. And then you said the invisible factor that makes it all work is the patience. Just give it, give that process time to work, right? And yes, you can't include feelings. Also, Joe, one plus two equals three. Look, look at number two. You can be happy when you do number two. You can be sad. You yeah. can cry. You can whatever it needs to get done. No one, the equation does not care about your feelings. Yeah. And one of the quotes that I live by is if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. You know who said that? It's a great quote. If you can fail. That's me. That's you. Wow. Your son, that was the speech that I gave at a school. Yeah, yeah. That was the topic of the speech is if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. If you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. That is pretty powerful. That is awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So one of your MOs is you're a counterfighter, right? Southpaw counterfighter, right? So is it fair to say that counter puncher style came from your ability of not getting hit? So my theory in boxing, my people say boxing's hit and not get hit. I disagree. I believe boxing is not get hit. And if I get around to it, Joe, I might hit you. Yeah. <laughs> my number one thing is defense. If you can't hit me, you can't win. That's so great. You just hit a chord with me. I've been training in jujitsu for like 15, 20 years, and I'm far from the biggest guy and the fastest and the strongest on the mat. And my whole style is just not getting submitted. Like just hanging around, hanging around. And it, it looks like they're killing me. And then I'll wait four or five minutes so the dude bigger, stronger gets tired. And then they either get frustrated or they get tired. It's a mistake. You, yeah. You start getting, they get ticked that they can't get you because they've been all over you for four, five minutes. And just when they reach or they do that one bad habit they did in the first time in five minutes, then you catch them. And then that's me. I don't impose my will on anyone for the first four or five minutes of a round. Conceptually, I'm right there with you, man. That's, that's let, let me here's my boxing style. So my my thing is, I just mentally want you to know that I'm better than you, and in every sense of the word. If we're in the ring, I'm a better boxer than you. I'm a better defensive fighter than you. I'm a better lover. I'm a better father, Joe. I'm better than you in every sense of the way, because mm -hmm. I want you to know that I'm smarter than you. So beginning of the the round, you throw a punch, I slip it, I throw an uppercut. That's my signature punch mm -hmm. as a southpaw flip, uppercut. You throw it again, slip, uppercut. The third time you throw the jab, slip, you're expecting the uppercut. So you close your eyes. Yep. I don't throw it. When you open your eyes, it's me smiling at you. <laughs> now, you know, if you throw that jab again, I'm going to hit you with an uppercut. Now I'm fighting a one-handed fighter. The old way they used to score boxing is every time you hit me, you got a punch. Every time I hit you, I got a punch. Yep. I used to win fights three to one because yeah. the first first round, I'd run away from you. Why? Because I'm so confident I'm going to score points in the third round that I don't need the first two rounds. And you run around, you get completely exhausted. I'm six one. I'm fighting super heavyweight, the biggest weight class. Why? Because they get tired faster. Mm -hmm. If they hit me, they'll kill me, but they won't hit me.
Why? Because I know and I believe in the equation. And the thing about the equation, it's not always right, Joe, but it betters your odds of success. So what point when you went in the ring and they asked you to spar, you're initially kind of concerned and you went in, you became a counterfighter, then you realize you're really tough to hit. In 2008, you won the national championship, number one ranked super heavyweight in the nation, win- winningest boxer in USA boxing history, four-time gold glove championship, six U.S. national championships. Crazy. At what point did you go from training in the ring to like, whoa, not only can I be in the ring, I'm going to have a high level of success. How long did it take you to figure out like, not only do I not need to be, not not need to be scared, but... I can go in there, impose my will, and actually have a high level of success. How long did that take to click in? Oh, immediately. When like too fast. Because as soon when I when I tell you, I didn't tell anyone about this equation. First, I thought people would think I was crazy. But I realized this was the secret to everything. When I first I won my first fight and I thought I might be the greatest boxer to have ever lived. And then I lost my second fight. And I was like, okay, maybe this maybe this formula isn't a hundred percent. Ali's record safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I realized, first of all, the most important thing in all of this is confidence. Now, what that equation does is it gets you experience. The only thing that you can add to that equation other than patience is experience. And if you don't get discouraged and you do it again, the second time you do it, because you didn't quit, you have more experience. You better your odds. Patience experience. Now that's great. How about this? You're boxing. So tell us about you're winning your championships. Tell us about the Olympic trials. How close did you get to making the Olympic team? Tell us about that. So, crazy. Within two years of boxing, I qualified for the 2008 Olympic trials. Okay. Is that in Rio? Uh, Where was that? Where was that, that was uh, That was going to be the Beijing. Beijing. Okay. I just got out of high school. I I qualified for the Olympic Olympic trials and I lost, but, and it was expected. It was a fluke that I I got within two years of boxing. I qualified. That was like a big feat in itself. But when I lost, I took it logically. Most boxers, when they lose at this high level, they become professional and they start fighting for money. Mm -hmm. If everyone leaves and turns pro, doesn't that make me the best one left? I'm number one. So I took that mindset of I'm number one now. After 2008, I said, I run stuff. This is my house. Because mentally, I was the most experienced boxer. Everyone else who comes up is pretty new. And I end up winning nationals in 2008 and pretty much every year until 2012. Okay. And I won the 2012 Olympic trials. Okay. I was traveling around the world, like fighting in different places all around the world left to fight in Azerbaijan, left the country and didn't tell the drug testing agency. And they showed up to my home to give me a random drug test. Missed drug test is a positive drug test. I was suspended for a positive drug test. Really? So you're... This, fight- is, Go ahead. Th- this wasn't even a real offense though. This is... This is a... No one's ever been suspended for this. This is just happens to be after Lance Armstrong went on Oprah. They made an example out of a bunch of athletes. I happen to be one of them. Really? So you go fight in Azerbaijan. That is why. Is that like a Soviet, like a solid, uh, Soviet solid? It's right. It's right over by uh, Kazakhstan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're over. You're fighting over there. Pretty remote place, at least from the United States perspective. 
you're over there and then you're there for X amount of days or weeks. And they, they give you a random test while you're out of the country. It happened three times in about three months. So I was in a training camp in Los Angeles. And I, when I went to Azerbaijan, they call you to tell you when you miss a drug test. But because I don't have my phone, it's not on. I didn't know that they ever showed up to drug test me. Wow. Now, all the tournaments that I was fighting in, because I was suspended and I didn't even go home to even read the mail to know I was suspended. I was still fighting in all these tournaments I'm fighting in. You get drug tested too to even compete in. So I got the minimum sentence because there was no suspicion of anything in my system. It was just a clerical error. But when you read an article, that's not what you read. You read, I failed to meet drug test requirements. Really? Wow. How, how frustrating is that? So embarrassing. Because first thing people are like, oh, what was in your system? Nothing. Coffee. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even, bro, I don't even drink coffee. Don't even drink coffee. Like a Gatorade. Uh, I was in your system. <laughs> and so it was embarrassing explaining that to people. It was embarrassing because everyone I knew, like knew I was going to the Olympics. I already won the Olympic trials. I left the country because that's what I was training for. And it was all taken from me in 24 hours. Wow. That's rough. What, what goes through your mind when you relive that story? Uh, so my, my buddy picked me up from the airport because I got to spend it, it. The hearing was in uh, Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center. And I was boxing for a team in LA, uh, a group in LA. And after I got suspended, they were the first people to call me and they said, hey, don't bother coming back here. We'll mail your stuff where you want us to mail them. So basically, that's where I lived. So I had nowhere to live. So I called my buddy up. I'm like, hey, I need your couch. And he's like, of course. And when he picked me up from the airport after I flew back from Denver, he looked at me as soon as I got in the car. He was like, so how long do we wait until we can laugh about this? And I was like, that's exactly, I've been crying for the whole flight. And that's exactly what I needed. And I realized, okay, this is just going to be a tough, embarrassing year. I knew before I even got to this place, I was like, I'm going to have some lobes. It's not going to be a good time. I knew eventually I have to box. I have no other skills in life. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to college. I don't have any degrees. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I have any other options. Yeah. So what was your next move? So after you're on your friend's couch, what you go, what you do from there? I started doing boxing fitness training. So I, I posted ads on Craigslist and I had a gym that allowed me to work out there for free. I would do boxing fitness with people for $25 an hour. I would do four, I have four people, usually four nurses, have them do mitts and hit the bag and everything in an hour. I make a hundred bucks. So that's how I was making my living. I got an apartment and other than training, I just went back home and I just drank by myself. Wow. Uh, I gained a lot. I gained, I got up to 277. From what was your fighting weight? Usually about 215, 220. So you put like 60 pounds on just drinking, chill. Wow. Yeah. I put an ad on Craigslist and this guy reached out to me. He's like, hey, I want you to train me for my first fight three, four times a week. And I'm like, ching, like I need clients. And he wants to train for his fight. So I'm like, good. And he shows up and this dude, he's 40, 43 years old, severely over, not severely, he's 
probably about 50, 60 pounds overweight, and he has a knee brace on. Damn. A month ago, I was on the way to the Olympics. Now I'm training a guy with the knee brace on. He can't get into the ring because of his knee brace. Wow. What goes to your mind there? That's your new reality. What's your next move? Like, what are you thinking? Uh, so here's the thing. I, I always know my parents are there. I'll sleep in a homeless shelter before I go back home. Because in my eyes, that's failure. There's no, so if I don't have a safety net, and I think it's very important, if you don't have a safety net, you won't fall. You have to keep going. So I knew there, I couldn't go back. I had to just have, I had to figure things out. So I had to financially get myself together. And I had to start making money for myself. I started training with this guy. I could have felt sorry for myself. I could have said I was a victim. I could have said, well, this is, I don't think I should have been suspended. But now I look back at it. I didn't do my job. When I signed a contract, I said I would let them know where I would be at all times. That is my accountability. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for us to take accountability and say when we messed up. Yep. Now, I, I was just stuck training this guy. And he's vegan or whatever. And he comes every so often, he mentions something about being vegan. But every week he comes in, he's like smaller and smaller. And after two months, his knee brace was off. Uh, and no, you, you train with someone that often. So we're always chatting and stuff before and after the workout sessions. Then we, we made a bet, Manny Pacquiao versus Timothy Bradley. Mm -hmm. They're having a boxing match. Bradley is a vegan. I made a bet. If I said, if Bradley won, I would, I'd be vegan for 28 days. Okay. <laughs> and I lost that bet. I was so, I, Joe, I didn't even watch the fight. Bradley was not supposed to win. Yeah. But I'm a man of my word. They showed up to my house the next day with yeah, a garbage bag. They took all of my food that wasn't vegan out of my apartment, brought it back to my buddy's mat house that I, I crashed on his couch. And I had to be vegan for 28 days, bro. Here comes the cashews and edamame. <laughs> Cashew cheese was one of the first things we made. Here it comes, man. Here it comes. Coming at you freaking 60 miles an hour. The here, well, here, check check this yeah. out though. I lost the bet, and I didn't know at the time that the diet entailed sobriety. Okay. <laughs> if I knew I had to be sober for 28 days, I wouldn't have placed the bet. Okay. Because I was drinking very heavily at the time. What are you drinking? Everything cheap, everything I get. No, no, no everything cheap, everything I get my hands on. What I would do is I would get the Sam's Club had a handle of vodka. Damn. I can't remember the name of it. It slips to me because I'm, uh, but it's the same bottle of Tito's and it's the same producer and everything like that. So what I would do is I would get a Tito's bottle and I would just refill the Tito's bottle right. with other cheaper liquors. So if I end up, if someone does come over, I'm like, oh, I'm drinking yeah. Tito's, but it, it was yeah. just. When you're going Sam's Club handles, man, you're in the game. You are in the game. Yeah. <laughs> in the game. Oh my God, with the vodka. No kidding, man. That's frat house stuff. So let's just go a little sidetrack from the boxing and your journey vegan. I went plant-based about three years ago. Oh, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I grew up, we all got a story. I grew up, I mean, from like Sicilian, Italian, like immigrant grandparents. You know, it's it's ravioli, chicken cutlets, meatballs. You say vegan, maybe you could say plant-based vegan, whatever you want to call it. Just say you're not eating meat, right? And not really eating dairy. You get looked at like you're from Mars, right? Like you're like, are you crazy? So these two people, Bill and Amy, I end up, yeah. they're becoming like their family now. They're, I talk yeah. to them all the time. I'm actually going to go see them in Seattle in a couple of days. But I looked at them like they're crazy when they told yeah. me they're vegan. Oh, yeah. And when I was so embarrassed 
when I had to be vegan. Because <laughs> my order was, I would go through the McDonald's drive-thru. Yeah. I'd get three, three double, che- three McDoubles because they were only ninety nine cents. No mustard, no pickles, extra onions, extra ketchup, and three McChickens with cheese. Damn. That I ate. That's all I ate every day. Just six burgers. Wow. Yeah. For let's jump a little bit. Let's say like a month in to being plant based. How to feel? What did you notice? Oh. What you feel? So at the very beginning, the food tasted terrible, but I realized it takes twenty two days for your taste buds to adjust. Mm-hmm. And after 22 days, I was like, you know, this isn't too bad. Day 25, I was like, I feel I'm feeling better. Day 28, I was sad because it was over. (laughs) And I lost 32 pounds in those 28 days. Crazy. Just from going to eat those burgers and drinking every night, Uh, you just shed weight. Let alone what you're doing to your lipids, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your chances of stroke and heart attack and dementia. It's insane what the benefits can bring when you, when you eat sure yeah. sure joe but i'm not going to be a vegan but i said i'm going to do it a little bit longer because sure. i'm feeling so good i'm looking so good i might get my six pack back but joe under no circumstances will i ever be vegan sure it's been over 10 years now <laughs> and i can't find a reason not to be vegan it's or plant-based whatever plant-based. You- so one of the things that surprised me the most, like I used to love chicken cutlets and meatballs and like filet mignon, like love, 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 like eat piles of it. It's shocking how much I don't miss it. Like shocking. Like I don't sit there and I don't have like food envy where someone's grabbing a steak and I'm eating whatever. It's amazing how much I have zero food envy. I, like there's someone's eating a cheeseburger. I'm like, it kind of smells good. I'm good. Like you I broke it, your addiction. Yeah, I broke it. The addiction's broke. Like. It was like a month in, but man, like there's no, like, oh my gosh, I can't be around you. You're having a cheesesteak. Not for me anymore. I don't, I'm not, yeah. not mad at you. Just not for me. Yeah. Uh, but the cool part, and I think the greatest part of that suspension was Bill and Amy, they, they knew I didn't have much money. I was training to like make a little bit of money. I got my apartment. When they showed up, they showed up to my apartment, took all the, tr- took all my vegan stuff out and then took me to the grocery store. They bought me containers because I was looking like a bachelor. They bought me containers, plates. They bought me the vegan food. They taught me how to grocery shop. She specified, you want to go around the grocery store, the perimeter, because mm. usually down the aisles is all where all the junk is. Yep. She taught me where to see the serving sizes, what the serving sizes meant. They taught me how to cook. And they did this. We did. We spent the entire Sunday doing this. And then they put all the food in containers. We cooked a week's worth of food, and they put it in my fridge, and I ate three containers a day. They showed up the next Sunday. We did it again, and we did it every week for about for, for months. We called it our Sunday cookathons, and eventually we would have people join us. We'd put throw money in the pot. Everyone, Bill and Amy, they pretty much covered most of it, but we'd all go grocery shopping, and at the end, we'd all take our different containers and have our food for the week. Mm-hmm. And it was the community I needed when I was so secluded. Yeah. And again, food is something communal connection, right? It goes back to what you said about like eating in Italy. It's a community. When you sit there and eat, it's very connection-based. It's It should be social, right? You shouldn't spend too much time eating alone by yourself. You know what I mean? That's just not very healthy. Thank you for sharing that. Moving on, getting back to your journey in boxing, right? So when did you realize... Your competitive 
careers done? Was it the drug test? Did you have any hope of doing anything competitive in boxing after you failed that drug test? I knew I would have to get back to boxing at some point. At first, I was just very angry at boxing. And I was yeah. like, I'm never going to box again. And then I was like, oh, wait, I don't really know how to do anything else. I don't really, I don't, definitely don't want to like get a nine to five. I guess I'll just continue down this path of boxing. Like the, actually the goal was a TV show, Joe. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted, so what I did in 2012, uh, oh, I, I, I said instead of boxing to go to the to get on TV I started going to open mics and I started doing stand up comedy really tell us about that well the whole reason of me boxing was not to actually go to the olympic i didn't really the goal was to be on TV so i can get a TV show so i figured oh i'll just start doing stand up comedy i i just wanted to perform that's all i wanted to do so i started doing stand up comedy and i realized how many more doors would open if i were a boxer so i decided i was going to return to boxing because i can do more comedy shows as a number one boxer in the country mm-hmm. i can book shows that way because i'm not the greatest comic i'm not that experienced so i decided i was going to return to boxing but this time i wasn't going to let boxing take everything away from me the way it did this time i was going to return to boxing and i was going to i was going to play by my rules so the first thing i did was I skipped this part earlier. When I was in high school, my boxing gym was six miles away from my high school. So I would have to walk six miles every day. Wow. Three hours a day, Joe. This is before music was on your phone. So I didn't have batteries for my MP3 player. Mm -hmm. So I just made up stories in my head. And if I'm going to make up stories, Joe, I'm going to be the protagonist. So I was kicking butt in all these stories. I was winning all the matches. I had all the girls, all the money. None of this was true. Mm-hmm. But this is what I said. 15 hours a week, I was giving myself positive affirmations. And that's when this confidence came about, about me. I became almost cocky because I believed in myself so much. I had the formula. If I put in the work, I've walked six miles every day because I knew one plus two equals three. Joe, I had to walk to the gym. I could have walked to the gym happy. I could have been sad. I could complain. But no matter what, I had to get to the gym. I could have felt sorry for myself. I could say I, I could just take the bus home because six miles is unreasonable. Yep. But no one's going to want my success more than me. So during my suspension, I was so hard on myself when I was trying to get back into working out and get in the gym. I would work out for two or three days and fall off and work out for two or three days and fall off. And I couldn't keep that consistency. And I was beating myself up. And I realized there was a difference between 2012 Cam and 2006 Cam that was walking to the gym. One of us liked me. And I decided I was going to be my biggest fan again. One plus two equals three. I said earlier, you need to be your own biggest fan. No one's going to believe in you until you believe in yourself. And I realized during this time was the first time I stopped believing in myself. Why you stopped believing? I was so discouraged from not being able to go to the Olympics. I was heartbroken. Wow. How did you move on from that? I doubled down. If I truly believe in this formula, and Joe, I do, I'm going to have to make myself my number one again. So -hmm. what I did was to prove how much I believed in myself, I went out and I legally changed my last name to awesome. Wow. That's a face tattoo, Joe. That's a commitment. So your name that you boxed under was? My, my birth name was Lenroy Cameron Thompson. 
Okay. Lenroy Cameron Thompson. And you woke up one day and you decided you were? Lenroy Cameron Thompson. Everyone called me Cameron or Cam. Yep. And because I'm a junior is my dad's name. They should have just called me junior, but they called me by my middle name. But during fights, they would have to put me under Lenroy. So I knew I wanted to change my name to Cam. So after I fight, when people look me up, this is marketing reasons. If everyone knows me as Cam, I want people to be able to find me when they look me up, when I fight, mm-hmm. when I do comedy, when I do anything. So I was going to change my first name to Cam, but I said, you know what? How much do I believe in myself? Because there's no taking it back mm-hmm. if you change your last name to Austin. You have to commit to whatever you're doing fully. I can't be working a normal job and be Mr. Awesome. I have to be fully committed in whatever I'm doing. So I decided to go hard. I changed my last name to Awesome. I did it on my half birthday. So I can now legally celebrate both of them. And I decided to return to boxing. But I wasn't just going to be a boxer this time. Because when I lost everything from boxing, I had nothing to fall back on. So I started doing stand-up comedy. I started speaking at schools. I started to do everything I could with a microphone. I saw there was a big market in VegFest, vegan festivals around the country. I volunteered to MC all the vegan festivals for free. You pay for my flight, you pay for my hotel. Why? Because I just wanted to stay. I wanted stage time. Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. Yep. If I'm on stage for 10,000 hours, you're not going to stop me. Yep. I'm going to be nice with a mic. Yep. So I was doing stand up comedy. I was MCing vegan festivals. I was speaking at schools and I was training for the Olympics. I returned to boxing. I won nationals my first year, 2015. I reclaimed my spot as captain of the national team again. I won nationals 14, 15, six, every year until the 2016 Olympics. And, but the entire time that, that was a showcase on the documentary Counterpunch. It's still on Netflix. Uh, what they don't show in that documentary is in between all those fights, I'm doing stand up. When I fought in the Olympic trials in Reno, Nevada in 2016, that same weekend, I performed a full weekend. I did six shows at the Laugh Factory. Why? Because my goal was no longer boxing. I wanted to be a performer. Boxing is just the thing that's going to get me some stage time. One plus two equals three. The equation changed. Me plus stage time equals better performer. How do I get that stage time? I got to be good at what I do. What I do is boxing. Now, that sounds really great, but after I won the 2016 Olympic trials, I lost an international competition and didn't get to go to Rio. Really? What happened there? Uh, Lost in the finals on a split decision. Really? Close fight. If I would have won, he couldn't complain. That close, huh? He won. I want to complain, but I lost that fight. That was July 4th, 2016. I got back to my hotel. I knew exactly what I was doing. I, I made a post online and I, I said, lost my fight today. My Olympic run is over. Time to re, re, reinvent myself. And I said specific reasons for each Olympics. Re, re, reinvent myself and see what's next for me. And I ended it with, it may not be boxing. The reason why I put that there is because I have a plan and I knew my plan was going to seem crazy. I wanted to be a speaker. I was speaking at all these schools. I was basically doing stand-up at the schools. All of my jokes have morals and messages to it, so, but I'm doing motivational humor. I'm a good role model, and I'm a performer. I realized I was living my dream, so what I, I needed to do was I need to get better at it, more stage time. 
a year later, July 4, I, I bought a van and I lived. Uh, so to 2000, 2017, I, I took a, I went on my first speaking tour in my Prius. I was going to just be living out of my Prius, maybe getting hotels from here to there. I totaled my car three hours into my 51 day trip. This is a story I shared at your son's school. And I have a video I played for them. I got out the car and I said, the best things that happen to me are usually after terrible things. Let's see what happens next. And the reason why I took that video is because I am so confident in this formula, Joe, that nothing can stop me. Now, if I were to got, get out of the car and I was pouty and I was pissed off, then I would become discouraged. But if you can fail without being discouraged, success is inevitable, right? Yep. Went, got a rental car and took everything out of my total car and continued on my trip. On that trip, Bill and Amy, I went to their house in San Diego. They moved to San Diego, the, the vegan couple. And Amy made a joke. She said, Cam, you should buy a van and live down by the river. And that's a Chris Farley Saturday yeah. night live. I didn't know. But I looked it up and I, I never knew that people can live in vans. <laughs> I bought a van. I bought a Dodge Sprinter with the insurance money from my total Prius. I bought a van and I lived in that van for three years. Why? Because I wanted stage time, because I want to be the best speaker as possible. The reason why I became such a good boxer is one plus two equals three. Me plus experience equals winning. If I'm in the ring 10,000 rounds, I've mastered it. If I'm on stage 10,000 hours, I'm going to master it. So I went around speaking at 200 schools a year, living out that van for three years because I wanted to become the best performer possible. I hone my message. I'm become a better writer. I'm making my delivery better. I want to perfect this craft. But while I was doing all of this, I also remembered you're not as relevant if you're not number one in the country. So Joe, I went back and started winning nationals again. You went back to boxing. Yeah. I went to go fight in the Olympic trials in, for 2020, and they wouldn't allow me to continue my speaking business uh, if, because it's an Olympic sport. They won't let me like leave for speaking and stuff. So my dad is from Trinidad. I realized they have an Olympic team. So I learned about Trinidad. I flew over there. I filed for citizenship. I got became a citizen. I fought in their Olympic trials. I won by knockout. I returned to the U.S. I was living in the van, speaking at schools, doing stand-up comedy, emceeing vegan events, and then I qualified for the 2020 Games. And then the pandemic happened. Wow. You were on the Trinidad? Trinidad's team. Trinidad's Olympic boxing team. You were going to the Games. What were the Games in 2020? Tokyo. You were going to Tokyo. They canceled the Games. And the one you yeah. found it and the games are and then, Yeah. And Trinidad's such a small country without much of a budget. And the reason why I was able to fight on their team is they don't have enough money to send all of their fighters. So I had to work and fund myself. And I won my spot and I said that I would cover my own way. You were going to fight in the Olympics in Tokyo for Trinidad. Yeah. So when the pandemic cancels the games in Tokyo and you got that official, it's not happening. What goes through your mind there? Pivot. I spent every dollar I had 
on that Trinidad thing. And I was dead broke. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I don't have an income. Everything. Cause I, I thought I was a master of all trades. I, I MC events. I do comedy. I do speaking, whatever. I box. Everything I do requires a live audience. Yeah. I'm stuck. So I pivoted, pivoted hard, trying to figure out what skills I have, what relevance I have. Cause all I have is my life experience. I don't have any certifications. And there's a lot of opportunities for, I realized speaking about culture and diversity was popping in 2020. And now I'm no professor or anything like that. All I have is my own life experience from traveling to over 30 countries as captain of the USA national boxing team. And when we would go to countries as captain, my job was, to find out all the do's and the don'ts about the country culturally, and then relay the message to my teammates as to not make us look like idiots in other countries. So like Azerbaijan, one thing I didn't realize, you're not allowed to tip. We had a tour guide. So I was going to hop in a taxi in Azerbaijan and the tour guide was like, Hey, don't go in there. They know you're from not around here. They're going to take you to the middle of nowhere and rob you. So he called his friend to give us a safe ride for free. Joe, that's my favorite price. But culture here in, in the States, as a thank you, I shook his hand because he, he hooked me up. I, I slipped him a few monots, a few of their dollars. And then I came back from the mall. He called me to the back room. He put the money on the table. And he says, if you respect me as a man, why would you do this? And I was like, uh, uh, uh. I'm just a dumb 22-year-old. I was like, first of all, I don't have a lot of money. The fact that I gave you some, I thought you'd be appreciative. But in his culture, every culture is different. Culture just means a way of life. There's no right or wrong. It's just different. Men work. They don't take handouts over there. They don't do welfare. Mm -hmm. What I was basically doing is saying that he wasn't man enough to take care of his family. Wow. Now, of course, that wasn't my intent. But that's the impact I had on him. Now. I've put my foot in my mouth and done these type of situations all around the globe. So I started sharing those lessons with corporate audiences to talk about cultural communication in the workplace of how simple interactions can lead to disagreements. So you got to pivot. Got to pivot. I think there, there's a quote, leaders make very fast transitions. So you're going a certain direction, the circumstances change. Leaders know how to pivot and recalibrate, and the transition is very quick. It's not a long, drawn-out transition, right? So let's move on. Thinking of the school kids you speak to, what do you think they're up against? What message are you trying to convey to them? I want students to know that just because other people think something's difficult doesn't mean that they have to believe it is as well. A lot of people will tell you what you should and shouldn't do based off what they think they're capable of. And Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Why would you ever not think you could do something? So, Joe, actually, here's something back in 2012 that a light that switched off my head that I'm able to better articulate now. Yeah. When I was so hard on myself and I changed my last name to Austin, I wanted to believe in myself. I was humbled. Now, how old is your son? 16. 16. Now, do you have your phone on you, Joe? I do. Okay, can you Google the definition of humble? 
You got it. One sec. Now, while you Google that definition, a few questions for you. Yep. While you look this up, I want you to tell me your son, if you would wish this definition of humble on your son. Can you read me that definition? Yep. It says, have, showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Do you believe that's a positive trait? Reading it that way, no. That you would not want one of your kids to have a low estimate of their importance. No. That's a fluke. That might be a fluke definition. Read me the second definition. Second definition. Of low social, administrative, or political rank. Does that sound positive? Does not. That's a fluke. Give me the third definition. Lower in dignity or importance. Now, the Latin root word of that is lowly. Humiliate and humility sounds very similar, right? Mm-hmm. The con- and, and of course, I, I want to preface this with being humble in the eye of the Lord, and I want to respect everyone's religious beliefs. But Joe, last time I checked, you weren't the Lord. Why would I be humble around you? So when I realized I was humbled, I was so cocky with all the, the 15 hours of positive affirmations all the time. And then in 2012, I was humbled. And I realized, oh, that's just my own personal belief. I think I'm small. I think I'm not worthy. And then I began to think, oh, no, I need to think highly of myself. I need to think I'm awesome. Now, I don't want anyone to think that thinking, don't be humble, but I'm not saying be obnoxious, but believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. And if, if you believe words are powerful, and I believe words are powerful then us being humble is limiting ourselves. We're putting a glass ceiling above ourselves by telling us ourselves we aren't capable of being the greatest. I was just emceeing a show and one of the, the guys in the panel, a song was playing. I was, I, I was bumping to the song and someone was like, oh, you like that song? That's his song. I was like, oh, this is your song? Oh man, I didn't know you were a musician. He's like, yeah, man, you know, I do a little, I do a little something, something. I was like, no, no, no. You don't got to be humble about it, bro. This is your music. And he's like, oh, it's important to be humble. And I asked him, who does being humble serve? And I ask you, Joe, who does being humble serve? We're speaking of the definition we just described. You're serving the other person. You're kind of lessening your own importance to serve other people, not yourself. Yeah. So when I say I'm awesome, people think, oh, Cam thinks he's up here. And you're down here. No, no, I don't think that. I think everyone should be up here. But you want me to say I'm not awesome. You want me to not celebrate my wins. You want me to be smaller. You want me to be humbled. But the thing is, I don't want that. I want you to come up to where I am. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that you're capable of everything that I'm capable of. I want you to know that with discipline, with patience, and with experience, you can accomplish anything with that equation. It just takes a little bit of time. Discipline, patience, and experience. Yeah. That's a that's a thought I'm just working on. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that because I want to say it in a respectful way. Being humble and being great are conflicting beliefs to that definition. Yeah. And the Latin root word. Appreciate you sharing that. How about moving on to a part of our interview we call share your secrets so our guests can get to know you a little bit more as a person. How about this? You're a busy guy, hundreds of talks. When you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Ooh, I uh, get a good playlist and I just run. I hit a treadmill. Yeah. I hit a treadmill and I just run. Problem is I'll zone out and I'll run more than my body should be capable of running. 
I did 11 miles about two weeks ago. And it was the first time I ran in a long time. And I did just 11 miles cold. And I was, my body was shot for like 10 days after. <laughs> I was like, okay, we should, we, we should. Uh, so now I, I just ran four miles yesterday and like five miles a day before. So I'm taking it slowly. But when I run, I'm able to clear my mind. Yep. And I feel like the exhaustion from running, I don't know how to explain it, but the exhaustion from running tires a certain part of my brain that yep. blocks creativity. Yep. And it feels like because my brain is using its effort to make sure I'm working out, that creativity, I mean, I can write, I write all my blogs, I write all my speeches while I'm on the treadmill. The better shape I'm in, the better writer I become. To a degree, like the same principle, Nietzsche said that all great thoughts come from walking. When you move, it, it, it's physical and mental. When you physically start moving, your brain starts moving. We meet up at sunrise at 6 a.m. at my jiu-jitsu academy. We train sunrise jiu-jitsu. So we're there like 5.45 a.m. We're rolling like 7 o'clock. We're out of there. All these ideas are bouncing from in my world, like, uh, like what I need to do, what I don't need to do, ideas to do stuff, different ways to take the podcast. They all come flooding in my mind, driving home from jujitsu after all, yeah. like you have that good roll for an hour and you're just spent and tired, right? And all yeah. this for work and for, for hobbies and stuff come flying in. That's great, man. Thanks for sharing man, that. Hey, you ever, you ever forget to work out for a while and you're like, something's wrong in life. Yeah, and you can't figure what it is, and you, you, I don't know, you go to clear your mind to work out. You're like, oh, that's what it was. Yeah, you didn't move. That's you what move. I was missing. You didn't move. You didn't move. You didn't get active. You know, a couple of days where work's busy, you're traveling, you're sitting a lot. I know when I sit a lot, my mind after a while, an hour or two, I'm fine. But if I sit for two, three days, I'm in a long meeting. Like I'll find myself getting up at five thirty in the morning and just going for a walk in the dark outside around the hotel just to get my brain moving. You know? Yeah. How about this? People like yourself, you mentioned your blog and you're on stage. High achievers like you are big readers. What book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Oh, yes. We read books, right? We read books because we value someone's opinion, their insight, and their advice, their wisdom. And then we get to the end of the chapter and it says, before you go any further, do these action steps. Mm -hmm. What do we do? Usually go right to the next chapter. Yeah, next right. chapter. Yeah. I'll get back to it. Think about all the books we've read and how many we didn't go back to. Oh, yeah. So I decided the next book I read, I was going to do every... It was the pandemic. I was bored. I said, the next book I read, I'm going to do everything this book says. It was Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Yep. It was a little woo-woo for me. I did everything. Just like I lost the bet and I gave me... Man, my word. I did posted notes still everywhere. I did the mantras in the shower. I wrote my goals down. I have, I wrote long-term goals. I did everything this book said and it started to work. And because it started to work, I was like, well, if this can work with money, can it work with happiness? Because it was the pandemic. There's no community. I'm feeling sad. So what I did was the idea is if you flood your mind with the thought of making money, money will come. And I thought, well, I want to flood my mind with happiness. So there's a company and I'm wearing her socks right now. I always wear socks. Uh, it says happiness. Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, so she, it's a lady started a company. She puts positive affirmation on underwear because your brain is more receptive to not negative or positive, just your brain's more receptive to information. 
first thing in the morning. So she puts positive affirmations. When I thought about that, I said, well, first thing we do in the morning, it's our phones. Yeah. Every time I get on Twitter, it's RIP someone I grew up loving. Yeah. It's like people die every day nowadays. It's negative. It's who's dead, what blew up, what exploded, who got in a fight, who did what, who went bankrupt. Yeah. That, it's terrible. So what I decided to do was before I look at my phone every morning, negativity, I was going to wake up and write a list of 10 things I'm grateful for every morning. Awesome. I'm grateful for my house. I'm grateful for my car. I'm grateful for my washer. I'm grateful for my dryer. Those are two different things. You can be grateful for everything. I didn't have a washer and dryer growing up. The fact that I can do laundry in my house, now I wrote that on my list. I never repeat anything on this list. And when I go to schools, I challenge students to do the same. And do it for 30 days. After 30 days, you have 300 reasons why you should wake up on day number 31. Because in the story I shared, I have really high highs, but I have really low lows. And I wish I would have had this tool to help me during those times. So I wouldn't be drinking. I wouldn't find other ways to to find happiness. Tim Ferriss, are you familiar with him? He's a uh, podcaster. Yeah. And uh, so Tim, work week. Yeah, absolutely. He has a question to his guests. What purchase under $50 most changed your life? If he would ask me that or somebody would ask me that, I would say my blank journal. You, you get a blank journal mm. and you fill it. If you write 300 things that you're personally happy for and say you fill the journal with 300 things, that book is invaluable. You can just go to that. And just when you're having a bad day, think of 300 reasons why not to be angry, right? There you go. Journal. 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 I started this July. Uh, I started this July of 2021. Yeah. I've done 10 things every single morning since. You will not run out of any things to be grateful no. for. And here's why. I learned uh, through a TikTok rabbit hole, your RAS, your reticular activating system. So your brain takes in a 40 billion bits of information, but your conscious mind can only process a little bit of it. So your RAS acts as a filter. Your unconscious mind puts the information through the RAS and it gives your conscious mind the information you're looking for. So perfect example, let's say you want to go buy a yellow car. You go shopping for a yellow car, you don't buy one. But after that, you start seeing yellow cars everywhere. If something like that ever happened, it's not that someone painted all the cars yellow before. It was because your RAS, your filter, it was activated and said, hey, Joe is looking for yellow cars. And then you start seeing yellow cars everywhere. So when you wake up every morning, before you look at your phone, you say, hey, I'm looking for things to be grateful for. What do you think your brain is going to start to show you? Just the way forward. You're going to start noticing that stuff. Yeah. Every morning, I get more and more things. And the thing is, all this started through that Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. It it has completely changed my life and the way I live, my morning routine and everything. Noticing stuff. And if you said, I'm grateful for my washer and my dryer. If you ever had your washer and dryer go down, about a year ago, ours broke. And with a couple kids in the house, like that changes the dynamic of the house. After like three days, there's no clean clothes. And like you're going to the laundromat, like a 15 minute drive from your house to do your wash, that changes your day. That changes your mindset. That changes like what you're grateful for. Then you fix it or you get a new one and you're like, oh my gosh, I could do my wash in my house and hit the button and go wrong with my day and my clothes are clean. You can be grateful for the most minuscule things. Here's something that I heard. It's not original, but they said, if you were given a list to write everything down that you're grateful for, 
but anything you forgot, you won't have tomorrow. How long would that list be? be pretty long. There would not be a short one. There's so much to be grateful for, but what do we focus? If I told someone to come up with 10 things that's not going right every day, well, they'd be yeah. able to because that's what they're looking for. Straight, Their yeah. RAS is looking for negativity. This yeah. is a way to rewire your brain. And Joe, and, and it's free. It's yeah. free. Yeah, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing that. That's fantastic. How about wrapping up here? When you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I am working on a book. Yeah. I am I'm working on a book. I, I'm trying to be because I, I realize there's power and vulnerability, but it's also terrifying to be vulnerable and even sharing things like being bullied in school and having to leave school early. That's to me is embarrassing to say. And uh so putting a lot of stuff out there is is scary, but I've never found scary to be a bad thing. I feelings, that's that's feelings. Feeling scared, that's, and the thing is, I do value mental health, but your feelings is different than mental health. Yeah. Because if you're like, I lost this basketball game and I feel, or I I lost the basketball, I feel stupid. I don't want to play anymore. That's your feelings. That's your emotions. That's you worrying about what other people are thinking. It's not so much your mental health. There's, I want to make sure there's different because I do value mental health. You got to push yourself. We covered a lot of the last hour or so. Cam. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? I would say that journal, but not just for you, because a lot of parents want things of their children that they're not expected to do of themselves. They'll say, hey, he's never reading. He's always on his phone. Do you ever have a book in your hand? So one of the things that I urge parents to do is buy journals for everyone in the house Mm -hmm. and do it as a family every morning before school. It doesn't have to be 10 things. I do 10 things because I go hard. Okay. Even if you want, you have younger kids, you want to start with three things. Everybody, every morning gets together, they get their notebooks together with breakfast. You write the three things you're grateful for. You don't even have to share it with each other. As long as you know it, of course, feel Mm -hmm. free to share it. Gratitude is a powerful thing, man. And it's so underrated. I think Tony Robbins said, you can't be grateful and fearful at the same time. And you can't be grateful and angry at the same time. You have that gratitude. It kills anger and it kills fear. And it's so cool. Last two questions, fun ones to wrap up. How about this, Cam? If you could spend the day with anyone, historical figure, athlete, alive or dead, who would it be? Historical figure? Anyone. Is that anyone? One person you could grab from the universe and spend a day with, who would it be? Nikola Tesla. Really? Very cool. Yeah. What would you do with him? Yeah. Uh, I think he understands certain things about the universe that we don't quite understand. And I believe energy is real. We just don't have the language to even decipher enough to talk about it. I, I do think the human mind is so much more powerful than we believe it's capable of. And I think we're, we limit ourselves. And I think he unlocked it. And I want to know what he did to channel that. That's cool. Nikola Tesla, that's the first time someone said Tesla on the podcast. That's very cool. Last question. Cam F. Awesome. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body. What would that quote 
or motto say? If you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. If you could fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. I love it. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up. KMF Awesome, I'd like to thank you for joining us, man. It's been a pleasure. If people are looking for you and what you're doing online, or they might want to get you to speak, where can we find you? You can find me at, at KMF Awesome on all platforms and KMFAwesome.com. Yeah, reach out. I'm, I speak at schools, businesses, and I MC shows and also do stand-up comedy. So yeah, is, get me busy. And what I'll do is I'll put all of that, I'll put your website and all your social media handles in the show notes. Hey man, Cam, great to speak with you. Man. Appreciate your time and uh, keep rocking, dude. Doing great work. I love your energy. Have a great day. Hey everyone, it's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.